Hi, I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Thanks to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast, left a five-star review, most importantly told 10,000 friends and family members about the show, and encouraged them to subscribe and download and check it out for themselves, as well as any of you who picked up my book, Breaking the News, or went to alexmarlowe.com to click on my socials, and as always, breitbart.com all day, every day for the latest in news and analysis, all you need to know about the news, everything, it's all there at breitbart.com. In today's show, I will break down the latest in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which continues to go very poorly for the prosecution. Uh, I will talk about more evidence of the failures of Joe Biden's open borders agenda. Uh, We'll play a clip of Kamala Harris using what appears to be a fake French accent and Joe Biden using Veterans Day to take the opportunity to talk about the great Negro. You'll figure out what that is uh, later in the show as well. Bad economic news for anyone who likes Christmas cookies and bad coronavirus news for anyone who likes freedom, all that to come. Uh, But most interestingly today, we're going to have a little slightly different format because our guest slate was just so solid today on the full three-hour show in Sirius XM Patriot that airs live every morning, 6 a.m. Eastern, and the full show on the SXM app as well. Uh, But Ian Coulter made a long overdue return to the show. Ian and I are friends of many years. She also writes column for us at Breitbart News and one of the most interesting Americans, period. And she's particularly excellent when there is a trial going on that's captivated the public and media's attention, as is the case with the Rittenhouse trial. And as she breaks all that down, plus we talk about the open borders agenda and the threat of big tech, and always a very interesting catch up with her. And Jocko Willink makes his first visit to the show. Uh, Jocko is very well known as a social media maven, but also as a longtime Navy SEAL and a leadership authority. And we get into leadership techniques, the importance of discipline, and also uh, I get his take on what went wrong in Afghanistan uh, since the Biden administration took over and what we can do about it. Plus, we talk about his latest novel, uh, Final Spin, I guess is his first novel out now, and a super interesting American, and we can all learn a little bit from a guy like that. And that is all ahead on today's show. But first, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors that I have really come to regard highly, and that is American Hartford Gold. I'm not the only one who's noticed that everything is getting so expensive, and we're in the biggest economic crisis, no doubt, since 2008, and the government just keeps printing trillions and trillions of dollars. And what we're seeing is consumer prices at the highest level in 30 years. And if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, then the dollar could lose its coveted role as the world's reserve currency. So uh, how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help you move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market and into the precious metals IRA specifically. So they make it easy for you. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. So if you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. That's right, $1,500 free silver in your first qualifying order. So uh, don't wait. There's no reason to. Call them right now, 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. Again, that's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. That's American Hartford Gold. Let's get right into the news. We'll start with a Kyle Rittenhouse update, which is there's not, it wasn't a ton yesterday that is new, but I will note that there was a witness who said that Rittenhouse tried to de-escalate the riot, not cause violence. Um, a freelance journalist named Andrew Drew Hernandez, who testified uh, yesterday that Rittenhouse was uh, trying to de-escalate the conflict between the rioters and the armed guards uh, watching a local business. Um, and, uh, I will get into this with uh, Ann Coulter later in the broadcast, but the fact of the matter is, is we are now, uh, this trial is getting increasingly absurd. When you think about the whole premise of why we're here and why it's such a big deal is we, people like Joe Biden announced that Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist without any evidence whatsoever. And the bottom line is, is that this guy showed up at a Black Lives Matter rally and managed to shoot three white people and no black people. How many Americans know that? Probably very few. That is the, the, the breakdown. Three people written out shot were 
all white. So uh, I hadn't thought of it that way until I watched the events unfold this week, which have all been disgraceful, not just for the prosecution, but for the whole left. The mockery of Kyle Rittenhouse crying on the stand, calling him a faker, uh, continued. Uh, Anna Navarro, uh, who is a, a clownish figure who appears on cable news, I think. I forget if she's on The View now or if she's on CNN or both. Um, but she tweeted, Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed Anthony Huber, 26, Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, and injured Gage Grosskreutz, now 27. Think about how much uh, their loved ones have cried, real anguish and grief, not crocodile tears. Uh, I mean, one of these guys was a, literally a child rapist who had been out of jail and had been freed from jail. So, again, it doesn't mean that it's not a bad thing that he got shot, but that is... Uh, Anna Navarro is crying crocodile tears for him. It's a one, and uh, Gage Grosskreutz's testimony helped Rittenhouse. So it is, I think, a little more complicated than the way that tweet had been uh, distilled down. So they just convict Kyle Rittenhouse in the court of public opinion because they wanted, because they'd already announced that this guy must be a big racist and an emphasis of America's institutional racism, and they don't like to need a gun. Uh, by the way, I will say for the record, uh, if you have any 17-year-olds, I would encourage them not to show up at a Black Lives Matter riot and uh, wielding an, an AR-15 or an AK-47 or any huge gun like that, or really any gun in general. I would not recommend that. I don't think that's a good move. So I think there's a good chance you can get yourself into big trouble. So... It's not like this is a entirely black or white scenario, but it's pretty much as close as, as you could have got, considering the scenario. So we'll continue to have updates for you at Breitbart News. But I'll tell you one thing that's on my mind now is that Facebook, um, who had banned essentially supporting Rittenhouse entirely online, and you know Twitter and Instagram and all these other places were policing Rittenhouse content. Instagram is Facebook, for those of you who are unaware. And it's all going to be meta. So that's all coming. But uh, they basically banned supporting Rittenhouse, and now, uh, and GoFundMe, this is another one that I'll talk to Coulter about, because she's pointed this out as well, the GoFundMe wouldn't let Kyle Rittenhouse fundraise, and now it looks like Kyle Rittenhouse uh, was, is going to is going to walk, and for good reason, after enduring incredible public humiliation, not just scrutiny, humiliation, they try to humiliate him online, so... And so I'm curious to see if anyone will try to hold the masters of the universe accountable for being overly censorious of content that is pro Kyle Rittenhouse. Because you can convict him before the trial. That's okay. You can call him a white supremacist with essentially, you know, you get branded as that in America. You could brand him as a white supremacist. That's fine. But you can't, you know, go have a GoFundMe for him or write supportive content on the masters of the universe's social media platforms. But anyway, it, it is all, all the latest at Breitbart News. is very important for everyone to check it out. And we'll continue to have that for the rest of the day. Um, I, I will mention some coronavirus stuff because this has been coming up on the show and I want people to be prepared for this, that we're going back under the mass and we're going back under lockdowns in certain parts of the country. Masked up Florida, by the way, has the the some of the lower, lowest cases as we've been, been pointing out. And some of the ma- masked up states, so mass list Florida, Wide open, doing well, masked upstates, doing worse. No one will point this out, and we should point it out. We should continue to point it out because it, now you've got Dr. Hot Mass, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC head, who is suggesting that we should have the mask not just for the coronavirus, but also for the flu and the common cold. It, it, this is just straight out of Orwell, is that you expand it. Yeah, yeah, we wear the mask for coronavirus, but also for the flu and the common cold. And then eventually the coronavirus goes away. And then, yeah, we'll, we just wear the mask for the flu and the common cold now. And, you know, there's some a lot of doctors that express to me offline a concern that we're just going to keep ma- making our immune systems uh, worse and worse. That, you know, spritzing ourselves with Purell constantly and covering ourselves up and staying home is actually making it so that we're just going to get sicker when we do get sick. And it is part of human life to get sick. And this is the thing is that that's why the standard should have always been the only thing that made any sense uh, in terms of the probably the only thing literally from the public health perspective that has made sense throughout this pandemic has been the flatten the curve uh, uh, mantra. We were trying to make it so the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. And then once they weren't overwhelmed, we should have been allowed to go live our lives. Once we caught up on the PPE and on the testing and on the ventilators, which turned out to be um, uh, oversold to us as something necessary. But still, once we had that stuff, then we should have been allowed to kind of make our own choices. 
particularly once the vaccine was out, that we definitely should have been allowed to make our own choices. But that's not how it was phrased. And now they're moving towards, well, we also mask up for for, uh, the flu and the common cold. But it is about control. It's not about the science. Um, Germany's got record high coronavirus cases. China's got the highest cases since the beginning of the pandemic. And then we're seeing some more extreme reactions to it. Austria has threatened to lock down unvaccinated citizens. So you're literally going to have segregation. So in the meantime, Biden is allowing China to skate on this. He signed a joint statement with China, who's world's biggest polluters, by the way, on the seriousness of climate change. So will this be a binding resolution? No. Will China actually do anything? No. But they're committed to accelerated action in the critical decade of the 2020s. John Kerry called the statement a roadmap for our future collaboration. He's very pleased about it. This will not do anything. This is just basically a way for China to save face and for them the next time they're with us at any event, <clears throat> they're allowed to say that they are really committed to the fight on climate change. So they can have a good PR moment when we know that they actually just want to burn as much coal as possible and they've announced it. And it's a, I don't mean to be cynical here, but it is worth pointing out it is worth pointing out that uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, does buku business within China. And we have a big report on this, how Joe actually was advised by Hunter on the COP26 summit strategy. And Emma Joe Morris, our political editor, Breitbart, is going to have a big story on this. Um, Emma Joe, as uh, you guys who've been listening to the show know, she's on the show last week, new editor for Breitbart, who broke all the Hunter Biden laptop from health scoops. And 100% believes the big guy is Joe Biden, by the way. Which, of course, is never fully confirmed, but that is her uh, emphatic opinion from of her impeccable journalism she did on it, which, of course, was called Russian disinformation, which was not. But she points out that uh, Hunter Biden actually had advised um, Joe on strategy for COP26, which does not hold China accountable at all, uh, at all. And now we've got a face-saving statement, joint statement from China and the United States, which will do nothing. Um, And not only did Hunter advise Joe on this, he suggested that they are empathetic. Advising Joe to use empathy at the COP26. I was being reminded by my son Hunter when I was trying to get the COP26, what's going on over in Europe on the environment together. It makes a lot of difference. All empathy is, is looking at you and understanding what you're worried about. Sometimes I read Joe Biden and not the Joe Biden voice because it actually comes off as uh, even dumber. So important to note that, that that is what Joe has decided is a appropriate advisor on how to deal with China and the climate. It's Hunter Biden. The biggest grifter of his family of grifters. A guy who's so open about the grifts that he's running that he's probably only taken seriously by Joe, but Joe keeps getting, you know, Joe very well could be the big guy. Um, I will interrupt the serious news to play a very important message from Joe Biden, who decided yesterday that it was very important to tell this story of, I I guess it was Satchel Paige, but he misspeaks so often. He was at Arlington National Cemetery and uh, commemorating Veterans Day, and somehow he got to this point where he felt this was a good thing to say. 1D, Mr. Paul. I want to welcome all the cabinet members and honored guests joining us today, including the father of our Secretary of State, who served in the Army Air Corps during World War II, Ambassador Donald Blinken, whose birthday is today. Happy birthday. Thank you for your service to our country. And I just want to tell you, I know you're a little younger than I am, but, uh, you know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues, went on to become a great pitcher in the pros into the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Paige. He was the great Negro at the time. Okay, boss. 
so it's so much. Wow, it's a look. All praise is Satchel Page, but it's a. I don't know who else could get away with referring to him as the great Negro at the time. But then you see people online immediately rushing to Biden's defense. He he meant the Negro League. Like okay, fine, but he called him the great Negro at the time. So uh, I don't think those are those those mistakes. They just add up so much. Just got to play the corn pop clip. Just play it for yourself. Those of you who never really went through the whole clip, he refers to black children as roaches. It was 2017. So the guy's got a bad history with race. And the way he talks about black people is not good. So they, I'm just saying, I don't think this gaffe comes from nowhere. But uh, definitely amusing. I was not expecting a great Negro reference at the at Arlington Cemetery for Veterans Day. Uh, he was not the only person in his a uh, in his administration to say absurd things yesterday. Here's Vice President Kamala Harris, who decided she would deploy a what appears to be a French accent, but it's so bad it's hard to even know for sure, uh, during her trip in France yesterday. Let's play 2A, Paul. One of the things I think people in politics and um, government should really take from the approach of scientists, scientists operate with a hypothesis. I love that. A hypothesis. It's well thought out. It's well planned. They start out with a hypothesis. And then they test it out. Knowing, invariably, you're trying something for the first time, there will be glitches, there will be mistakes. Then everyone gets together. No one gets beat up about it. You analyze it, what went wrong. Reevaluate, update the hypothesis, and start again. With us in government, we campaign with the plan, uppercase T, uppercase P, the plan. And then the environment is such that we're expected to defend the plan. Even when the first time we roll it out, there may be some glitches and it's time to reevaluate and then do it again. It's mesmerizing. It's just absolutely mesmerizing. The plan. <laughs> That's a classic. That's a classic. Not a clip of the year candidate, but that, that is up there. Um, they give us a lot of uh, a lot of cannon fodder, I have to say, figuratively speaking. The people online were pointing out that the this reminded this clip of Harris reminded them of the HBO show Veep that made fun of the vice president. I was like, she's literally like a cartoon. She's very cartoonish. Everyone is so cartoonish now. That's the thing is that we're now only elevating cartoon characters. Uh, Trump did this to a degree as well, and though uh, of course he had some serious people around him, he had a lot of people who were kind of cartoonish characters. And now that we've got the Biden administration, just one cartoon after the next. What is this accent she was doing? In her explanation, the scientific method, which is not approached by uh, the, the the is no longer in style at the moment. Now the style is you draw your conclusion first, and then you invent data to back up your conclusion. That does appear as though that's how we operate. Um, I actually like the scientific method, which is she's trying to describe it, but she's just so uh, describing to like, you know, third graders. Um, back on Hunter momentarily, his wife says the laptop from hell doesn't exist. He was at a New York City gallery showing for him to make some more money off of his art. And his wife was asked about the laptop from hell that doesn't exist. It's really funny because I know exactly where it is. So that's a not only does it exist, I could tell you where it is. So it exists. They just cling to these lies. It kind of reminds you, I guess, of like the OJ trial. And then you've got the left, you know, and they're attacking Kyle Rittenhouse for crying. The same exact people who were treating AOC like she was some sort of a hero for going to her, you know, fake border facility photo shoot where she was weeping at the fence. It wasn't even the right fence. You guys remember that one? She got the red lipstick and she was sobbing. That was so that was so stylish. She was so smart. Just one cartoon character after the next. Cartoon country is what we're turning into. The Great Negro and The Plan. Back to back. Pretty good. I should note also, because the Bidenflation does, it is one of the biggest stories and will constantly be a big story. Uh, yesterday, I noted the Bidenflation is really bad for anyone who likes to eat breakfast. Uh, the day before, on Wednesday show, I noted the Bidenflation is really bad for anyone who likes Thanksgiving. And now I will note that the Bidenflation is really bad for anyone who likes to make Christmas cookies. So basic Christmas cookie ingredients are... Um, uh, skyrocketing throughout the country. Soda, butter, eggs, or baking soda, butter, eggs, flour, and sugar all skyrocketing throughout the United States 
And we have a breakdown of where in particular things are getting worse. And one of the things that we've noticed is the Biden inflation is actually hitting Trump country a little harder than the coast. So my point being that sometimes the taxes, these, which is essentially what they are, when the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, they do affect the middle America more, the working class and the middle class, much more than the upper class and the poor classes. Those who benefit from government programs don't hit it, aren't hit as hard, and obviously the wealthy, where the gap between the rich and the poor in this country is getting really big, um, that is, they're, they're not affected quite as much. So we'll continue to have updates constantly on that. And Joe Biden is finally starting to understand that this is a problem for him. And the media is struggling with how to message on this, that they went from Biden, the Biden inflation isn't happening to it's transitory to now it's a good thing. So we're actually seeing that that is one of the cases that is being uh, made constantly in the press by left-wing economists. In the meantime, real wages are crushing the American people. And finally, Biden admitted yesterday that that these are worrisome trends for him. Um, He said it was temporary three months ago, and now it's worrisome. And it's very important to keep reminding folks that that is how he framed it three months ago, is that he is really dismissed it as a big deal. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of a persistent inflation, but that's not our view, he said on July 19th. Our experts believe, and the data shows, that most of the price increases we've seen are were expected and expected to be temporary. So next up, he's going to blame Trump for this, but then he didn't even think it was real three months ago. So uh, again, you got to work on your budgets. Sorry, folks, unfortunately. Quick update on our broken immigration agenda. A deported rapist, criminal migrants were all found in a large migrant group near the border in West Texas. Bob Price of our Cartel Chronicles Bureau says the Big Bend sector Border Patrol agent apprehended a large group of migrants near Alpine, Texas, including several previously deported criminal aliens. Those arrested included a deported rapist and a drug trafficker goes on to list more of the details. None of this should be necessary. We should all have a wall, and then we should all have a situation where the cartels aren't as powerful as they are, but it is not a priority remotely with the Biden administration because they like it. They like an open border. Just know that, that this is something that I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not being hyperbolic. They like an open border because they reversed all the policies that were staunching the flow of illegal migrants into the country. And they could switch them all back, but remain in Mexico, back on, start building the wall, and we could be out of this jam in a lickety split. But he won't do it. We have an exclusive story also from our Cartel Chronicles Bureau that, uh, Bureau that Afghans, Syrians, and Pakistanis have been apprehended in West Texas recently. So the whole world knows this. People want to get in the country illegally. Um, also, folks from India. So they come in all from around the world. Uh, when we went down there as a unit, including with some of the good folks from SiriusXM at the end of 2019, we saw not just illegal aliens come from Central America, we saw them come from China as well. We watched an apprehension of a Chinese national who had come across the Rio Grande moments ago. The last one for the opening that I thought was very positive, an Alabama boy is now the world's most premature infant to survive. 21 weeks, so I think 22 is the previous... But Dr. Susan Berry had the write-up for us at Breitbart News. An Alabama baby boy was born only 21 weeks and one day has been officially named world's most premature baby to survive. Guinness World Records and University of Alabama at Birmingham Hospital announced Wednesday that Curtis Zy Keith Means, who weighed less than one pound at birth. Unbelievable. Wow. Good stuff. Uh, and I think it's very poetic that it happens in Alabama, you know, the, the part of the country that I think takes human life more seriously, I think, than other parts of America and is, I think, attacked unfairly by our elites. And this is what they're up to, taking life seriously, saving lives. Very cool. So uh, 22 weeks was kind of thought of as the threshold for viability. So now it's down to 21 weeks. All of this should make the abortion lobby very unhappy, in my opinion. Okay, we'll leave it there for now and we'll come back. Did you know there's a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting? AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the most significant conservative organizations in America. 
Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. Stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. Join today at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. Remember, today we're doing two interviews. The first one is with my personal friend, Ann Coulter, who is just always interesting, even when you disagree, and I usually happen to agree. Let's roll it. Always a pleasure to speak to my friend, Ann Coulter, one of the few people in this industry that I really do consider a friend. And uh, anything on your mind I, I want to get to today, and I know that you've got a big speech coming up on Monday in Lubbock. Is that correct? That's correct at Texas Tech. So cool. I can't believe they're letting you on campus. Uh, I, I'm going to be going onto a campus, I think, in March, and I'm still shocked that that's going to happen. Are you even allowed to not be canceled now? Well, I have noticed that it's more um, you don't want to go to a campus where they still have masking requirements. <laughs> uh, I did a few at the end of last year. And, you know, I was worried even in red states, you know, the college administrators are all left wing. Um, and they were at one school, I will, shall go unmentioned because everything turned out fine, um, in a red state. At the last minute, I started hearing that, that the administrator, the college administrator, um, is going to demand that I wear a mask for my speech. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I called so, so, in. It is a, yeah. a good red state, and everybody on the board and the governor all right wing. So, okay, everything went off fine. So I think that's right now the main reason you want to be hitting colleges in red states. They had to sit last year. They'd ha- It was fun, but, you know, they'd have to sit six feet apart and all the kids are in masks. And I like a bigger crowd. And, and I, liberals won't, won't ask questions unless they're part of a little mob within the audience. And the liberal questions are, you know, the highlight of my life. You know, what's interesting about this, it reminds me, it's reminiscent of that moment in time five, six years ago where the universities realized that if they just start charging the clubs like half a million dollars to bring a conservative speaker to campus for security, then lo and behold, the conservatives don't end up showing up. After my sponsors withdrawing from a Berkeley speech back in 2017, I did speak there at the end of 2019, and there were, I think, I think... 4,000 Antifa there to not only shut the speech down, but do me physical harm. Um, And no, it went off without a hitch, which is why you haven't heard about it. If they'd, you know, put a bunch of us in the hospital, ooh, it would have been celebrations throughout liberal land. And how how was I able to speak? How did we defeat Antifa? It wasn't because of all the money the school was spending. They were bragging about all the money they're spending for security. And it did, I mean, it was lines with SWAT teams and helicopters. What are the helicopters going to do? It was all for show and to spend a lot of money, but the the campus police and Berkeley police were prohibited from doing anything. They're just standing there. I mean, I'm not blaming them, but great, we have these ninjas standing around, but you're not going to arrest anyone. So people trying to get into the Berkeley speech, this was November 2019, um, were being set upon, having their tickets stolen, harangued, um, and and how is it that I that I, in fact they came to the restaurant where I was eating with the college Republicans before Antifa came charging in and you know screaming um, you know how they behave um, how did I make it out of the restaurant to the speech gave a fine speech didn't have to worry about a thing because of the Proud Boys thank you Proud Boys just them being around and and escorting nice <laughs> nice Americans who just want to come hear a speech. They've always gone out on without a hitch, which is why the left, um, the media in this country has to destroy the Proud Boys. They want people like me, like you, like the people coming to see us, like Kyle Rittenhouse. No, we are supposed to just stand there and be murdered. That's our obligation. 
because the media have decided they don't like us. Do you know the way that big tech has, has come down on Breitbart, the most popular conservative site in the country, therefore must be destroyed, um, <laughs> must take their posts off pay- Facebook. It really is outrageous, and it's outrageous that a certain president didn't do anything about it, which is why when he was dumped from Facebook and Twitter, I say, aha. Ha ha! You were sucking up to them for four years as they were crushing Breitbart, shadow banning me without question. I haven't gotten a new follower oh, on no doubt. for three years now. Particularly for public figures like like us, um, you sign on and your 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 followers grow geometrically because each person following you starts retweeting you. So the people following them then follow you. And then suddenly, I don't know, around the first year of the Trump administration, bam! (laughs) You're right. I've lost some, gained some, but they will never let it go above two million. You know, you're correct to note this about Trump, and I did write about this in my book, that he had a day in the White House where he had MAGA, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, uh, Alphabet, or whatever it was. That's MAGA. And it's a if he he does run again, and if he does win, then he's got to, on day one, crack down on these people. But... Uh, there's there's no suggestion that he won't try to co-opt them again the way he kind of did last time. It's uh, it's unfortunate. He doesn't co-opt them. They co-opt him. And he is absolutely not going to win if he runs. He could destroy another another Republican as he wrecks Georgia, but I think he's pretty much he's, – he's taken the path of, in my opinion, Sarah Palin, who was also great in her time. But it was the same people and it was the same hatred for Trump, the hatred of of Sarah Palin. These are people the elite see as Walmart shoppers, and they are they are genuinely hated by the elite, as we see this week with the with the trial and before that the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. They just yeah. hate him. They hate him. They think he shops at Walmart, and that's basically all you need to know about him. You know, you move on. We have new elections and new excitement, and I think we had that this past week. I mean, the Virginia election was was pretty great. Um, I don't even trust this guy, Youngkin, though in his in his victory speech, I loved I, I was watching it thinking, I just thought, he, eh, he's going to be another Romney, one of these rich guys, but who cares, he's not Terry McAuliffe. And then his, his victory speech, I called one of my friends and said, oh my gosh, he's a, he's a Christian. <laughs> so fantastic. This is very good news, even though he's rich. And he did really uh, kind of court the, the sort of more populist nationalist uh, America First base. Yes. But that was exciting. The very close election in New Jersey was exciting. I really, as I um, wrote, I guess, after that election, um, this is something that's really been bothering me for years, but especially now with Democrats claiming if they don't get, you know, six weeks of early voting and someone else can turn your ballot in for you, and we're going to have mail-in ballots and distribute them throughout the state, And if you don't do that, it's just like the dark days of Jim Crow. No, the issue is Democrats have what are known as unmotivated voters. Um, So they need six weeks to drag their voters to the polls on gurneys. Um, And and all this is is giving Democratic activists more time to collect um, ballots from, you know, senile people in nursing homes, go around to, to the sober living houses. No... No normal human needs 45 days to vote. And look, the Constitution says Congress shall designate the day of elections. Elections should be one day. Make it a federal holiday. But one day, that's it. That should be the Republican position. And instead, I see them just, you know, slightly in state to state, including Georgia, they chip away at the vast expansion of mail-in ballots and early voting that was all because of the pandemic. It shouldn't just be we're going back to 2012 rules. It should be one day. I'm Ann Coulter again, at Ann Coulter on Twitter. Let's talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial because let's take it from the top. Is there anything that surprised you throughout this trial so far? How overwhelming the evidence is on Kyle Rittenhouse's behalf. I mean, one thing the media lied to us about, this is a minor point, but um, they're trying to portray him 
as an interloper. He's not from here. Well, you know, nice to see liberals <laughs> after after sponsoring bands of Antifa rushing from town to town to burn down police precincts. Now they think you shouldn't be able to go to another town. No, in fact, he is, 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 um, his parents are divorced. Um, and his biological father, his actual father lives in Kenosha. He's lived in Kenosha. He has lots of family in Kenosha. It's not like he was just looking for some place to go. Um, how how the evidence is overwhelming that that Joseph Rosenbaum, the first one he shot, um, I mean he was came out of a mental institution that day, and was still carrying his little his little medical bag. He's been convicted of anally raping five little boys. Um, convicted, served time in prison for that. So we're dealing with obviously a very mentally ill person. There was a lot of video coverage of him screaming, screaming the N-word, really, really provocative. And Kyle, as well as a few of his compatriots, um, always like calming things down, calming things down. But he had Kyle cornered. Um, it wasn't that, that that he just caught Kyle. He had him cornered and grabbed the muzzle of the gun, and the forensics seemed to show that pretty clearly. Um, I was a few things I was thinking of, and basically the same thing with, with the other ones. Once you see the videos, see the forensics every time. I'm, there are a lot of people Kyle could have shot. If it's just, oh, my gosh, I'm panicked, I'm shooting. Oh, no, 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 no. He was, he was very precise shooting someone who was about to kill him, to take his gun, kill him, kill others. I was thinking, as I often do, as I'm sure you and your listeners do, thank God for cell phone cameras. And I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain. Thank God for them. There is no way that revolutionary, the one who had his arm blown off as he was pointing a gun <laughs> feet away from Kyle Rittenhouse's head. Um, there's no way he would have told. I was sort of surprised watching his testimony. Oh, my gosh, he keeps telling the truth. And then I realized there's video of this. He can't, he can't deny that he was pointing the gun at Kyle Rittenhouse from five feet away when Kyle when Kyle fired, and that's some good shooting, to shoot the arm holding the gun. You know, that's the crazy thing liberals are always saying after a shooting, usually a self-defense shooting, oh, why couldn't you shoot him in the leg? And, you know, people who know anything about guns know you're not, you're not going to get that precise. You are shooting to stop the threat. You're lucky if you hit any place on the body. And Kyle Bam! Right through the arm holding the gun. That was incredibly impressive. Um, it's outrageous that this prosecution was brought. It is peculiar to me. I mean, all everybody shot was was a white person. Some liberal and who writes for a liberal magazine said um, on Twitter, it wasn't until I saw this trial I realized that everyone Kyle Rittenhouse shot was white. I just assumed they were all black. This is what the media is doing out there. So and, amazing. of course, you know, Biden called, called Rittenhouse a white supremacist. The social medias were unbelievable on Kyle Rittenhouse. The two times I have been suspended from Instagram and Twitter were over jokey, mild, pro-Rittenhouse tweets or Instagram posts. And when unless you agree to, to voluntarily delete your tweet, which they've already deleted... Yes. Course. They won't let you back on, so I thought, ah, screw it. I'm going to Montana for 10 days. I'll just go off Twitter. I'm, I'm filing my appeal. I'm making my arguments. And yeah. with Instagram, you may have seen this, but you probably haven't since it's, oh, it's a forbidden forbidden meme. And, of course, most outrageously, GoFundMe. GoFundMe wouldn't let a friend of Kyle Rittenhouse's raise money for his defense. So GoFundMe's official position is, in a country based on Anglo-Saxon law and and the, uh, an adversary system in court, so so important that we will pay for your defense attorney. It's a constitutional right if you can't afford it yourself, because we think everyone deserves a defense. And then the prosecutor makes his best case, and the defense lawyer makes his best case. No, GoFundMe's position is Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't even deserve a fair defense. Uh, does he have a case that he should have been able to raise money? That's a good question. I mean, pr probably not. I mean, I don't know. I haven't looked well, at it. I wish. Yeah. I wish. But no, I mean, there are things a president or a Republican Party could do about this, um, it seems to me, as 
as with Facebook and Twitter out there, they, they are the public square. When you have a monopoly, they should be treated like monopolies and treat all all comers the same. You know, I mean, this. I'm sorry, this is a cliche for certainly you and your listeners, but you, you can't have Con Ed or the telephone company or the railroad saying, I'm sorry, we won't do business with you because Joy Ann Reed doesn't like you. <laughs> A sane jury would not only acquit him in six seconds, but ask if they could independently impose sanctions on the prosecutor for bringing this case. But I have to say, you never know what's going to happen with a jury. You only need one person on that jury who's sympathetic to, you know, Antifa and Joanne Reed. It's got to be a unanimous verdict. You only need one person and you could end up with a hung jury. I can't, I find it very hard to believe that you're going to get anything other than a hung jury. Oh, except on the silly gun charge. But the gun charge is very silly. What I was most surprised by... Um, was I'd figured that we were going to f- learn that Kyle Rittenhouse was it, it was was reckless and he was you know very immature the way he handled himself in the situation and and that's contrasted with the prosecution that doesn't know what a hollow point bullet is uh, that is trying yeah, to take guns and get him on a gun charge. It, it is very stark <laughs> from someone who's just kind of and I was in that camp that did withhold judgment until I've watched some of the trial. From the moment Kyle Rittenhouse finds himself alone, he had been literally putting out fires. So he's running away from him. Kyle is running away from Rosenbaum, shouting out, friendly, 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 to say, I'm not fighting you. This is peace. I'm, I'm, this is my surrender. Turns around at one point because Kyle or uh, Rosenbaum is, is, is making, is, he's slightly catching up to, to Kyle. So Kyle turns around, he's probably, Rosenbaum's probably like 10 yards away, and points the gun at him to try to get him to stop. But he doesn't stop. So Rittenhouse keeps running, and then he goes to try to turn himself into the police. The mob is chasing him. We know that he was, um, he, he's, he's running. He gets knocked down. One guy leaps up, the jump kick guy. They never caught him to kick him in the head. There's the hit with the skateboard. And then Gross um, points the gun at him. He then immediately goes to turn himself in. The police say, he tells the police, they're a line of police. He is walking toward the police. That's all he's trying to do. Walking toward the police with his hands up saying, I just shot somebody. And the police yelled at him, get back, get back, unless you're actually using the F word, unless you want to be hit with pepper spray. Go home, get back. So he goes to the, cl- he immediately goes to the closest police station he knows about, the one in his hometown in Antioch. The time from, from when he starts yelling friendly to when he is walking toward the line of police cars trying to turn him in is less than two minutes. Um, I want to change gears a little bit because we've got a few minutes left. I want to talk about immigration, which is even more pathetic than it was in the previous administrations, which is almost like you have to do it. And then you think, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It is intentional. Um, oh, what yeah. are you observing now? What, what, what are you observing now? Wow. The conservative movement has finally, finally woken up. I don't know that the GOP has, but now it's a big issue for erstwhile open borders Fox News, apparently, um, and talk radio. Um, we're not lonely voices in the woods anymore. The problem is we need some a president to actually do something about it, some Republicans in Congress to do something about it. But what you, what you started off by saying is, 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 is almost unimaginable that what Biden is doing is worse than any other administration. Trump has just driven the Democratic Party crazy. This should be good news for Republicans, because what they are doing is massively unpopular. Um, their own base, their own intellectuals have been begging them. You can't just say, well, Trump wanted to build a wall, so we must be for open borders. Um, you know, Andrew Sullivan, Frank Bruni, um, Thomas Friedman. Um, you know, the yeah, world is flat right. of the New York Times. I've been begging the Democrats, don't do this. Daniel Shore, the big Democratic pollster. Very, very bad for you, Democrats. Pretend you care about the border. Yes, of course we need security at the border. And then throw out a lot of stupid ideas that will do nothing to secure the boots on the ground. Um, we'll have drones. Yay, so we can watch illegals crossing. That'll be fun. We, 
we can't save our country, but at least we can have some laughs. <laughs> what on earth are the drones for? Are you going to shoot the illegals? No, we need hmm, something impermeable that doesn't require unemployment or pensions. I'm thinking a wall. But it's more than that. As we have seen with Antifa, as we see with the reaction to Kyle Rittenhouse, they just hate America. They want to, some portion of them, I'm not saying every elected Democrat, I'm sure you can produce one of, one of them who isn't, or maybe the ones I just mentioned, you know, Andrew Sullivan, Frank Bruni, and Thomas Friedman. But the heart, the progressive left, they hate this country. They want it destroyed, and this is how they're going to destroy it. This is a perfect example, Ian. They're watering down what it means to be an American citizen. Uh, They don't care that people are coming in who are drains on the American experience. They believe that we have essentially taken over land that is not rightfully ours. It's just us and Israel. Every every other every other country is legitimately divided in the world. It's only it's only the United States and Israel. We're the only two with illegitimate borders, and that we crossed. Um, that 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 our border crossed the people, not the other way around, so that they should be free to come and go as they please. That is fundamentally the viewpoint, and it is not a viewpoint of people who think America was this incredible divine experiment uh, that has gone better than any other nation state in history. They don't think that. They think we've been fundamentally racist, and we only got to where we are by oppressing minorities. Yes, yes, and we must elevate Elevate, elevate the the losers in wars. Other people get to celebrate winning a war. Um, there was. I, I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but I have been kind of obsessed with the Rittenhouse trial. The yeah, judge appointed by a Democrat, um, and long before the trial started, the New York Times was describing him as famously crotchety in the courtroom. Um, he did a couple things on on Thursday. Um, that has absolutely driven liberals crazy. I mean, this just is supposed to be showing his his clear bias, Alex Marlowe. Number one, on Thursday, Veterans Day, he asked if there were any veterans in the courtroom. There was one, and he said, let's give them a round of applause. Wow. Okay, right there, the Democratic Party's official position is that it is outrageous, probably racist, to applaud a United States veteran. That's your modern Democratic Party. Um, the other thing that totally flipped them out, well, there was some evidence that was excluded that should have been excluded. Um, so any, anything the prosecutor wants to do, if he's prosecuting you know, this white kid who probably shops at Walmart, no, he should be able to admit anything, even if the judge has explicitly excluded it, even if it's irrelevant, even if it wouldn't move. The, no, this is just proof of bias. Um, but the third one um, is the, the judge's telephone went off, and it was that that song. I personally find it a little bit hokey, but that's not the point. Um, pre- what what is it that uh, Lee Greenwood song? Proud to be an American. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the ringtone. <laughs> I'm not saying this about the Democratic Party. I'm not saying this about the left. They're saying this about themselves. <laughs> that someone who would be proud to be an American isn't one of them. As always, a pleasure. At Ian Coulter on Twitter. You can go to iancoulter.com. And thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I just can't get enough of that point that Kyle Rittenhouse, the greatest racist in the history of the country, went to a Black Lives Matter riot and shot three white guys. And Joe Biden called him a white supremacist based on nothing, even though he's a teenager. So uh, that is the state of our media right now and the Democrat establishment. They are trying so desperately to make this guy so much worse than he is. And not to say I excuse uh, all of his behavior or would recommend it to anyone, as I stated in the monologue. But it's just amazing that this was the ultimate definition of racism. Reminds you a lot of the Charlottesville hoax. Remember when uh, one white woman died and that was the other most racist event in the history of our country. Um, we are very confused people or we're all a bunch of liars. And by all of us, meaning the left and our establishment media. Or maybe it's a combination of both. All right. Again, our second interview today is with Jocko Willink, who is one of the most interesting Americans and is so prolific. It really is inspiring. As someone who I pride myself in being efficient, getting a lot done, and trying to have a diverse life where I do a lot of different interesting things. And this is a guy who bench presses all of us. Pun somewhat intended, because he definitely does a lot of bench press as well. Clearly, uh, spends spends a fair bit of time in the gym. But you will you can always learn a little bit when Jocko speaks, and he will speak to us all right now. Jocko, great to have you on Breitbart News Daily. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. 
But yeah, I appreciate you and all the stuff you're doing. And I, I'll tell you, one of the, my favorite things you do on social media is you post a photo of your watch when you wake up. And it's usually somewhere between four and five. And I, w- I woke up at about 2.30 today, and I was going to tell you that I for sure woke up earlier than you, and then I looked at your Twitter, and apparently you woke up at about 1.20. So uh, you, you, you beat me again. Yeah, I had some issues to contend with, and uh, one of those issues where I needed to make sure I woke up before Alex. Yeah, you got it. You nailed that one. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your background for those in the audience who are not familiar with you, and then um, I want to get into the novel, which I've been reading, and it, it's breezy, I'll tell you that, and people will enjoy it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your background, 20 year military career. And, uh, it was really centered. The centerpiece was leadership, discipline, teamwork, all these lessons that you learned during your time as a Navy SEAL. But I want to focus on uh, the concept of, of excellence. And one thing that we think about with the SEALs is excellence and demanding precision and excellence. And this is something that I think you encourage Americans to do. Uh, but we're in this time that just seems incredibly mediocre, that we're elevating the mediocre, whether it be in art, whether it be in leadership, whether it be in politics. And I think this is a real struggle. Uh, do you conceptualize it this way at all? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's one thing that is great about the military. Uh, at least when I was in, the military was based on what your performance was. And if you performed well, if you did your job well, you would move up the chain of command. And, and that's what we hope. That's how. That's what makes the SEAL teams good. And if someone it lacks humility or someone has issues, they will get removed from the system. So we always hope that, that that's the way things work because that's how you end up with a uh, highly disciplined and well-performing team. So during 20 years in the service, what do you think was the most important lesson or lessons that got you through that time? The most important characteristic that I talk about all the time that someone needs to have in order to be successful is humility. It's, I just mentioned it, but the, the idea of when we would fire someone from a CEO leadership position, the reason we would fire that person, it wouldn't be because they weren't in good physical condition or they didn't know how to shoot their weapon or they didn't know how to read a map. The reason we would fire someone is because they lack humility. Because when you lack humility, think about what that does to your mindset. You don't listen to anybody else. You don't evolve. You don't take on any new methodologies. And you underestimate your opponent. You underestimate the enemy. You don't respect your enemy. So those, all those things are a complete recipe for disaster. So humility is the most important characteristic that I saw in the SEAL teams. And it is the most important thing that I still teach to this day. Other than humility, what are the top things that you see people who are in leadership roles in their companies or in their families? Uh, what, are, what are a couple of quick things that you think people could implement today that would really help them? There's two really important things in leadership that I think people miss out on a lot. The first one is listening. <laughs> and I know there's a sort of a stereotypical uh, vision of what a leader does, and that's, you know, he stands up and tells everybody what to do. But that's actually not what you should be doing as a leader. And I rarely would get up and bark orders at people. Uh, a good leader is going to listen to what other people say, and that's how we come up with the best plan. The other, the other um, I would say, underutilized tool of being a leader is asking earnest questions and trying to figure out what someone else's perspective is, trying to understand where else someone else is coming from, trying to understand their viewpoint so that you can incorporate their perspective and their viewpoint into the overall plan so that we can execute the best possible plan. Yeah, that's so right on. I fully agree with with both of those uh, sentiments. I want to ask a little bit about some of your military background because it was Veterans Day yesterday. And, of course, thank you for your service and thank you for your continued service and inspiration to people. It is important to remember some of those who served who aren't with us anymore. And one man who you served with, fellow Navy SEAL, named Michael Mansour, who was posthumously got the Medal of Honor. He was killed 15 Septembers ago in Ramadi. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about him, uh, who he was, and what he did in his last act that was really, truly heroic? Yeah, Mikey Mansour was just an, an outstanding individual. He was from Garden Grove, California, uh, just a, a, a typical kid, great kid, and grew up always, you know, played sports, played football, and wanted to go and be in the SEAL teams. He was, you know, I was talking about humility earlier, one of the most humble people you've ever met in your life, uh, very, very, uh, very grounded in his faith and, and his family, an amazing family. And while we were on deployment, we were probably a week or two from coming home, and he was on, in a sniper overwatch position as a machine gunner, and he was in a 
position where he was with a, a couple other SEALs and an enemy fighter uh, kind of snuck into a close area that, that they couldn't have eyes on and threw a grenade into their position. And when that happened, the, the grenade landed right in front of Mikey. And Mikey actually could have saved himself by jumping away or running away from where that grenade was. But if he would have done that, the grenade would have detonated and killed uh, the other SEALs that were up there with him. And so instead of running away, Mikey, Mikey dove on that grenade and absorbed the blast, the majority of the blast, and, and saved three of our SEAL teammates. And, and that, that act of just ultimate sacrifice is, is why he was a recipient of the Medal of Honor posthumously. You know, we were, he received it, or his parents received it in 2008 from President Bush. It's a story I've heard a couple times, and I still can't get over it, that, that that level of heroism and that level of bravery and that level of purpose. And I think that's one thing that does come through with a lot of what you talk about is uh, people finding this deep meaning in their life. And I do want to come back a little bit to some of the, the leadership concepts, but this is a, a little bit about what Final Spin is. It's taking someone going from a normal life and uh, them trying to get themselves out of their rut and their monotony and their routine. Uh, describe maybe some of the inspiration for the story and maybe expand on what I uh, just brought up. Well, as you mentioned, there's people always trying to figure out how to become happy. And sometimes people get themselves in a rut where they, they're not quite sure how they are going to become happy. And, and this definitely, this book definitely points out that dichotomy. There's two brothers in this book. One of them is mentally challenged and he's obsessed with laundry. He works in a laundromat. He loves doing laundry and doing laundry makes him happy. He's truly happy as he's doing that. His younger brother, who's about 23 years old, He's made some bad decisions in his life, and even though he's smart and funny and charismatic, he's working at a big box store as a stock boy. And, and so there you've got two people, one happy, one unhappy. And when the, when the laundromat where the older brother works is about to be sold, the younger brother realizes that his older brother is not going to have that job anymore, and he's not going to be happy anymore. So the younger brother decides he is going to buy that laundromat. Well, in order to get the money to buy the laundromat, the only way he can think of to get that money is to steal it. So he plans, comes up with a plan with his best friend to rip off, commit a robbery at the big box store where he actually works. And unfortunately, things don't always go as planned, and that's kind of where the story goes sideways. The character that really pops off the page is Artie. I imagine that this didn't just come entirely out of your brain. Is there someone in your life or multiple people inspired the character? Yeah, so when I was a kid... I worked at Wendy's, and when I worked at Wendy's, there was a woman there, probably about 55 years old. Her name was Jean, and she worked the salad bar, and she had some kind of a mental disability, but she absolutely loved working that salad bar. She talked about it all the time. She was popping off the croutons, and she was making sure there was no wow. salad dressing on the, uh, on the counter. She absolutely loved it. And I realized that she was definitely happier than I was. I was uh, flip, flipping burgers as a 16-year-old. She was happier than I was. And I also noticed that she was apparently happier than most people that I knew. And, and that character stuck with me, and that character kind of came to life in this, in this character already. Uh, Jocko Willink is with me, former Navy SEAL and a very prominent leadership uh, leader, a leader among leaders, and uh, Echelon Front is his leadership a consulting firm. A novel that he has out now is called Final Spin, just came out. He's also written a number of very good uh, nonfiction books about leadership, and uh, at Jocko Willink on Twitter. Um, I, I brought up your Twitter and the importance of waking up early and getting going on the day. Uh, why do you emphasize this so much in your public persona, because I do think it's something that for me is just so crucial. I used to be kind of a late sleeper. Now I'm a very early morning guy and your productivity just goes through the, the ceiling, but I'm sure you've given this a lot deeper thought than I have. Um, and I would love to hear about it. I would love to tell you, Alex, that I've got some uh, much deeper thought than that. But as you just pointed out, when you get up early and you get to work, your productivity goes through the work, goes through the roof. And that's what I learned at a young age in, in the SEAL teams. You know, I wasn't the smartest guy. I wasn't the fastest guy. I wasn't the strongest guy. And I had to kind of make up for that gap by somehow. And the way that I made up for it was by getting to work early and getting stuff ready and making sure that I was a little bit ahead of things. And, and that just 
gave me such an advantage. And that's why I, I always emphasize people, if they want to start getting their life moving in a better direction, one of the best possible things you can do is wake up early in the morning, get some exercise, and, and beat everyone else to the battlefield. So what inspired you to decide to take on a novel? Because you're podcasting, you've got the nonfiction, you've got, I, I know you've got a, a, a fashion supplements, and there's all sorts of things you're doing. And you're thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a novel. Uh, what made you want to do that? Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, Alex, I've got a lot of stuff going on. And in my head, I've got a lot of stories, and this is, this is one of them. I've got so many stories in my head that are constantly playing out in my head, and I'm thinking through things, and I create characters in my head, and they're always bubbling up to the surface, and, and the more complete the stories get in my head, the more they want to come out of my head and go on paper. And, and that's what happened with this one. It's just stories that came that, that were in my head, and I just, just had to get them out. And, all, you know, all the books I've written – even the leadership books I've written, I utilize stories to teach lessons. And that's the same thing I did here. It's just that this one's made up and the other ones are real. I wrote a book last year and uh, it is the the way I got it done. And people ask me, how do you write a book? Because I'm, I'm pretty busy myself because editing Breitbart and doing the show every day. And it was probably something that you would appreciate, which is just disciplining myself to write at the same time and having a set schedule. And it doesn't matter if I'm in the flow that day, if I'm not in the flow, as I had to show up and start typing. And generally, the stuff that would that would get on paper was at least usable, at least something I could mold into something over time. But that was really the key was just the discipline to having a routine. Uh, speak to me about routine. Do you find routine very important? Was that something you used when you were when you go through your writing process? Yeah, and it's the exact same thing that I do. You know, I write a thousand words a day. It, it takes me about an hour to write a thousand words. I already know what I'm going to write about when I sit down. I have an, a general outline uh, on a piece of paper, and then every day when I get done writing out, before I stop, I'll sort of write the ne- the, the first sentence of the next day, and then I close and walk away. And and you, you're 100 percent right. And I think that if you talk to any writer. That's what you have to do. You have to just force yourself to write. And if you're not a writer, guess what? It doesn't matter. You can apply this technique to anything that you're doing in your life. Make it into a daily discipline where you do it regardless of how you feel. You should do that with your physical fitness. You should do that with any skills that you want to acquire. You, you make time for it and you force yourself to do it. And that's how you get results. Uh, Jocko Willink again is my guest. JockoPodcast.com, Jocko.com. And the new book, Final Spin, is out a novel, which is a breezy read. Uh, you'll enjoy it. Uh, Jocko, last little section here for today. I, I do want to get your take on uh, the America's Middle East policy at the moment. Uh, 13 troops perished in late August due to, I believe, some pretty fundamental blunders. And then uh, I think a fair bit of cover up after the fact. Uh, what is your thoughts on the state of America's Middle Eastern policy, particularly with regards to even some of our friends in Afghanistan who had helped us? Uh, it seems like we're abandoning some of the good guys and we're enabling some of the bad guys right now, but you know the stuff uh, pretty cold. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, we trapped ourselves in a situation where we couldn't admit that we were making a mistake. And and when you have people, I, I talked about earlier, where you're not humble enough to say, you know what, this isn't the right way. This isn't going the way we wanted it to go. We made some mistakes. Here's how we're going to fix it. We, no, Everyone was too ashamed or embarrassed or lacked the humility to actually do that. And we end up you know, getting driven out of this country. And when I was in the SEAL teams, you know, there's a, a phrase, the situation dictates. And, and what that means is, oh, if something's going on, you, you know, the situation will dictate what you're going to do. And one of the phrases that I learned in the SEAL teams was, we don't let the situation dictate, we dictate the situation. And that's the way it should be. When we're the strongest military in the world, you don't let someone like the Taliban dictate how you are going to do things. You do things the way you want to do them. And we made a tragic mistakes over there. Obviously, the loss of this strategic area. Um, obviously, the loss of the, of the um, Americans that were killed there. Obviously, the people and Americans that were left behind and American allies that were left behind. And then and then something that's going to haunt us for a very long time is billions and billions of dollars worth of military gear, hardware, weapons, and equipment, which is absolutely going to be used to kill Americans in the future. The whole thing is a complete travesty and it never should have happened. Uh, do you see any way to put some of the pieces back together? I mean, what, where do we go from here? That's, I think, the question that's really stumped pretty much everyone. What we need to do is go and fix what the mistakes that we made, and that means going back in and, and either getting rid of this equipment, destroying this equipment, bombing this equipment. Um, you know, the fact that we have already left 
We've left, you know, uh, the, the air base that we left there, it's a strategic air base, and, and it, not just for Afghanistan, but for the region. And, and so we've given that up. These are, these are strategic mistakes that we've made. And people say we're in a forever war. It wasn't a forever war. We, we were there to prevent a forever war. That's what we were there for. That's why we were in, that's why we were in Japan after World War II until today. That's why we're still in Germany until today after World War II. Our presence in other places helps us prevent war. That's not a forever war, and we should have just we should have done a better job. How do you go and fix it? You start to go back and fix these mistakes that we've made. Jocko Willink, a very fascinating guy, and the new book, Final Spin, will not disappoint. Thanks, Jocko. Really appreciate the time. Hey, thanks for having me on, Alex. I got American parts. Another successful week in the books. Thanks so much to Paul D'Amelio and Greg Evan, our excellent producers, as well as all the institutional support that's been provided to me and the show from SiriusXM and from Breitbart News. A lot of people have put time and effort into this, and which is why I recommend you share it all with 10,000 friends and family members. Uh, this podcast is a great way to get a flavor of the three-hour show that is every day, 6 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM or on the SXM app if you can't catch it live. All of that is available to you, Breitbart.com, get the app, AlexMarlow.com, breaking the news, all great ways to support what we're doing. And we can't thank you enough. We'll talk to you on Monday. Mm-hmm.